running now, huh? Okay, fine. We are now on the air. <laughs> Hello, and welcome to Bone Ditch by Ian Bird. My name is Ian Bird, and this is Bone Ditch, my collection of kitsch eldritch scritchings, short stories set in a world where catastrophe is an infectious virus, and patient zero, typhoid Mary Poppins herself, is a long-dead witch who is still keeping all of her eyes on you. You can always find out more about the Bone Ditch project at my website, www.boneditch.wordpress.com, and on Twitter I'm at Mr. Carapace. Tonight's story is the 20th, and things are getting real, which is to say that they're getting increasingly implausible. Tonight's story is a summation of Elliot Rent's 20-year history on the road, a patchwork of strange. Michael Breeden is back, but so is Sarah Kant, Margaret's stepmother from It Brings On Many Changes. We're also going to spend some time at the last end of the world. This story is called A Disaster Waiting to Happen, and I hope you enjoy it. Thank you for listening. It was just three days before the world ended, only a couple of days from right this minute now. The aeroplane crashed through the canopy of trees and ground itself through the white snow into the black dirt beneath. The orange blast of fire stripped the snow from the firs, and so a flash of emerald momentarily crowned the inferno, cradling a jet of cobalt blue as the gas tanks and the aircraft ignited. The effect, had you been flying above, was of watching a bruise suddenly blossom and spread across the albino skin of a recent corpse, bleeding through the spectrum before being dragged back to the inevitable black of the dirt and the smoke and all that extinguished life. Had you been down by the crash site, the effect would have been different. The colours were superseded by the roar of the explosion and the smothering stench of the spilled fuel and spoiled meat. The aircraft, by coincidence completed on the very day that Elliot Rent's parents died 20 years before, was a twin-engine regional airliner, and until 50 seconds before had carried 40 passengers, two stewards, a pilot and a co-pilot. All, with the exception of the co-pilot and one of the passengers, were now quite dead. The co-pilot's brain had suffered irreparable damage in the crash, and memories and insights were left boiling together in a grey stew that gave the casualty the illusion of sustained rational thought, when in actual fact these impressions were chaotic and finished in less than six seconds. In this time, stretched to an infinity by the dying man's ruptured sense of causality, he considered the fact that these would be the first fatalities ever recorded in the 23-year life of this model of aircraft, and also that he really should not have pressed that switch. Lying there... In fact, he was not lying at all. Now oblivious to his physical condition, he was unaware that while his torso was lying on the ground, his groin and his legs were still strapped into his seat, now caught in the branches of one of the pine trees, and his head was twisted in the ceiling of the flight deck, wrenched from his own torso and left dangling upside down, staring at the ruined control panel below. The co-pilot wondered why on earth he had opened his mouth in the first place. He had been bored, he had looked at that switch, his mind had turned on the possibility, and he had asked his captain... If you pull the number one tack, will the autothrottle respond to anything? As his brain finally died, he watched idly as the devil stepped between the gutted bones and fascia of the aircraft. The devil was smartly dressed, although inadequately for a mountain forest in the snow, and had grey skin. He was handsome, but not remarkably so. What are you doing? asked the co-pilot. His name was Bobby Franks, and he suddenly experienced a rush of déjà vu as he recognised where he had heard his own name before. His name was, all of a sudden, fresh and new on his tongue, like the snowflake that had fallen there on the morning of his sixth birthday years before. "'What did you get for your birthday, Bobby Franks?' Shelley Wasserman had asked him that morning, and Bobby had never heard his name said out loud that way before. She had looked at him and been genuinely interested in his answer. He had seen himself through her bright eyes and felt his name on her tongue, and in a moment had been formed that had never truly left his brain." Until that morning on the cliff slope, of course, dangling above the wreckage of the crash and mass slaughter he had caused. 
I'm looking for someone, said the devil, stepping between the devastated passenger seats and staring into the brutalised faces of the corpses still strapped tightly in to keep them safe. The flames didn't seem to be bothering her. The flames were grey, possibly because Bobby was no longer able to discern colour. Who are you looking for, Shelley? asked Bobby. Miss Eleison, said Shelley Wasserman. I know she was on the flight. Is she the one that runs the charity? he asked. Shelley Wasserman, who was actually a saint and not the devil, smiled. She was. It was 6.30 in the morning, 27th of September, 1983. The dead bodies were drifting off into the English Channel on the early tide, along with the remnants of the bonfire. The sun would be up in half an hour. Until then, it was just the dead body of Sarah Kant, staring into the east, grinding her teeth. It had been a good plan, but it had failed. The three sisters, Sarah's stepdaughter and her two new friends, one of whom, the writer, had been Sarah's friend almost 50 years before, and the third, the engineer who designed war machines, had already left, triumphant and joyous and terrifying. To witches the spoils, concluded Sarah Kant. No, Sarah hadn't counted on Jessica returning, hadn't anticipated her then forging an alliance with Margaret and the young woman, the engineer. It had been stupid of her. Even in the midst of a catastrophic wound, blood clots, scabs together, like finds like. Sarah should have planned for the eventuality. The dead woman had been Sarah Kant ever since she had left behind Jessica just a few short miles and 45 years away. She had run away, but Jessica had remained and learned from the bone ditch, and then nearly 50 years later, Jessica had outwitted her. The woman stood up, leaving the corpse of Sarah Kant at her feet. She was wet and naked in the fledgling day, a butterfly drying in the air perched above its cocoon. She was furious, but exhausted. The tide carried away the viscous remnants of Sarah Kant, a few dreams and agendas, a half-century of malice and ingenuity, nothing tangible, nothing like the other corpses in the sea. To the dead woman, this dream corpse, this tulpa, resembled a jellyfish, something invisible but poisonous carried on by the mechanics of the world. The jellyfish thing, boneless and without agenda, floated off to the east, away from the Kent coast, towards the continent. Above the sea in the dying dark hung the morning star, the last light left in the night sky. Venus, the planet that masquerades as a star. That would do, thought the dead woman, and she willed herself back to life. That fake star, the goddess of love, turned euphemism for the devil, and the alien jellyfish... These were the omens she needed. She named her new incarnation Stella Knid and began a new plan. She stalked off in the opposite direction from the three witches. It was the 6th of September 1997. Paris. Elliot Rent, her parents dead just over a year now, found the old man sitting in the cluttered study in the shadowy garret in the dingy apartment building somewhere in the 14th arrondissement. He was in his 80s now, shriveled and close to death in all the most picturesque ways. Elliot could see Montparnasse Cemetery from his window, where Simone de Beauvoir was buried. And across the street was a signpost to the catacombs, where tunnel after tunnel stretched underground, crowded with the bones of the dead of the revolution. One revolution turning forever, a daisy chain of terrors, the victims of the first becoming the perpetrators of the next, and so on. She had visited the catacombs in her previous life, a literal bone ditch of hundreds of dead. They outnumber us. This man's bones creaked as he turned to look at her. His tongue, cured black leather, caressed his lips as he watched her. This was an important man, she reminded herself. It wasn't his fault he should be dead. What are you doing here? he said. He blinked. Oh, Miss Rent, of course. He spoke English in an accent no one shared. What are you doing here? That's what I said to her, to Sarah. This was April 1940, London, Fitzdrovia. She must have been fifteen or thereabouts. 
She'd been living on the streets for about a year by that point, I suppose, taking advantage of the kinds of men who would take advantage of her kind. I promised her a bed for as long as she could use it, and assured her I would never ask a favour twice if she declined it the first time. I was a gentleman, in that I deserved whatever I wanted. She understood and she came with me. She didn't tell me much, but I gathered that she had met a witch one midnight in her local library and had subsequently gone quite mad. She was hiding from the witch and from the girl she had been, and she was appreciative of the fact that we shared a common insanity. Our first week together, I was the one who renamed her Sarah Kant. I did that. Sarah, because it was an echo of her old name and also resonant of Sarah, it will be and Kant because I had no tolerance for hypocritical or sanctimonious talk of any stripe, and also because whenever I asked of her a favour she would reply with nothing else, insisting to me that she couldn't do what I asked. I can't, I can't, I can't. So my name served her right, and, thankfully, before the end of the month, she had forsworn the word and she never again indulged in any such vapid moral atavisms. I told her to keep the name, however, as a lesson. There were so many deliberate deaths in the world that weren't murders. Elliot couldn't believe she was suffering this man to live. I don't know how I fell in love with her, he said, or why, but I did. She gave me everything I asked for, and then she gave me everything without my asking. She became exactly what I wanted her to be, something I owned that I could consume. And so she became part of me, no longer truly herself. As a consequence, when I devoured her, I began to devour myself. At first she offered herself to me, and then she was offering myself to me. Then then I found I was laying in my bed, and it was now her bed, and I was eating my own heart just because she fed it to me. Understand, she bewitched me. Me. They all called me master, and yet she made me eat my own heart. She insisted we marry. She designed the tattoos we gave each other on our wedding night, but in the morning hers was gone and mine was growing or my body was starting to shrink. Here he unbuttoned his shirt. There on his chest, above his heart, was an elegant Art Nouveau rendition of a skull with three eye sockets. The expression on the face of the skull was clearer than the expression on the old man's face. He was confused. She was simply hungry. That woman took everything from me, he continued. My friends and my wealth, my connections and my will. I had to fake my own death just to escape. I limped away with nothing and she took my fortune and followed the soldiers into Europe after D-Day. She was a journalist by then, I understand, looking for thrills while pretending to look for the truth. I heard that she followed the troops into Berlin and then later she was there when they liberated the death camps. I heard that she married a GI, but that he left her behind in East Berlin when the wall went up. That must have been how he escaped her. That was in the biography, said Elliot. Yes, the spider bitch. Wonderful book. That's probably why I heard it. Tell me. She kept the name even after I died. Sarah Kant. Don't you think that meant that she loved me too, surely? Yes? Elliot laughed at the old man and left him to die. She wrote down his story in what was already her fourth notebook, then went to the scene of the car crash. This was just over a week after the death of Princess Diana. It was barely a year after Elliot's parents had similarly died and she was still fascinated with car accidents. The underpass was festooned with flowers and tourists milled around, taking photographs with a semi-erection of shame, half-mast. Elliot hadn't taken any photographs, but she had made a sketch in her notebook and scribbled down what she had been thinking. She still thought of herself as a medical student at that point and was contemplating the physical injuries that the princess and her companions must have suffered. 
It was also instructive to be around the grief that the crash elicited in the bystanders. The death of her parents the year before hadn't aroused anything in anyone apart from herself. Even her friends had been embarrassed by the accident rather than affected by it. Elliot was growing cold, she recognised. The outpourings of grief at the death of the princess and her companions offended her, without her being able to articulate exactly why. And it wasn't a surgeon's remove, Elliot knew. It was an absence rather than a defence. These people wanted to beatify the dead woman, to make her a saint, and Elliot somehow found that insulting. Sainthood was something bestowed upon you, she knew, rather than something you took for yourself. You had to be dead to be a saint, and you had to perform miracles. Well, here were strangers weeping at the death of another stranger. Was that sufficient a miracle? Yes, she was truly getting cold. Something awful had happened, and all it left in her was a desire to see what awful thing would happen next. She wondered whether this was how Sarah Kant had felt. It was late on a Friday night, and Elliot happened to glance up from a notebook. She had started by writing about the other bystanders around her, before idly sketching what the ruined bodies of the victims might have looked like. She still had an excellent eye for anatomy. As she glanced up, her eyes met Natalie Brandon's. When eyes meet, it is customary to look away as a reflex, out of social awkwardness or a desire not to be interpreted as a threat. The dead princess herself had mastered that. But Elliot was growing cold by this point, and her blood was electric, full of a purpose that she could no longer properly describe as entirely human. Some of her reflexes had been crippled in the car crash that had killed her parents, she understood, had atrophied and died. So she didn't feel the impulse to break eye contact with this Frenchwoman about her own age, and surprisingly neither did Nat in return. Nat smiled, noticing that this woman was also sketching, and she opened her own notebook so that Elliot could see her work. She opened her book as one might uncross one's legs. Elliot still retained the voyeuristic reflex to glance down at the flash of paper revealed, and found herself looking at a detailed drawing of a ruined car, wrenched open and splayed like a corpse autopsied by a madman. So Elliot showed Nat hers in return, and they compared mortalities and morbidities. Nat Brandon, she discovered, was studying to be an automotive mechanic, and had been intrigued by the idea of an expensive, perfectly tooled machine being transformed into a murder weapon. What do you think they did with it? Nat asked Elliot over a beer. I guarantee you someone spent a fortune on it. It'll be in a private museum by now. Why, said Nat, to see what it'll do next. The two of them remained friends for the next 20 years. The night of the aircraft ca- crash, so much later, Elliot received an email from her. Chase has run away, said the email, and I think you may be a grandmother. Elliot reread the email. She knew that this was Kataki Eleison's fault, somehow. It was Valentine's Day, 2000. The madman Mickey Sin was with his lover, a woman called Damsel who he saw whenever he was in Brighton. In the aftermath of the Mask of the Red Tops, he had found his enthusiasm for his work waning and had begun to lash out at competitors and allies alike, as if in pursuit of some kind of radical inspiration that wasn't shackled to tradition or reason. He was becoming manic, vindictive. His impulse control was becoming weaker, but somehow, even so, his plans were becoming more successful, more profitable. Carry in economics, there's profit everywhere if you keep that head on your shoulders. He was sufficiently self-aware to recognise that this was a form of self-destruction, that his colleagues wouldn't long tolerate his change in business strategy, but also whimsical enough to be charmed by the undeniable fact that his new method of doing business was earning far more, and was even engendering greater engagement among his soldiers. But he was a gangster, and a gangster without a gang is merely a sociopath, and he knew that he would shortly have to take his leave of this life of organised crime. 
his peers were now frightened of him and while surprised at their sudden increase in profits were conservative in their bones, conservative with a small C word, and they didn't like the blood that he was kicking up. It wouldn't be long before they would hold one of their interminable meetings and vote to have him exterminated. It was a pity. Mickey knew that he was on the cusp of great things. If his bosses had just shared his love of this odd poetry he had found with the start of the millennium, things might have been different. Just the week before, the American, Cutter Farita, had attempted a hit on him in retaliation for Mickey's hijacking of the heroin that should have been on its way towards Boston by now. Too bad for Farita that he had taken that telephone call before slitting Mickey's throat. Daddy, said the voice on the phone, the lady says she's going to kill me. Everyone knew that Farita had a secret son, some love child he had smuggled away immediately after his birth where no one could find him, hurt him or get through him to his father. Dozens had tried and failed to unearth the little bastard and Farita had remained inviolate until now. Mickey took the phone from Farita and told the little eight-year-old to put the woman that was with him on the line. The woman, a martyr smith by trade, had been paid a fortune by Mickey and was eager to gloat. Mickey let her boast and strut, then told her to eat the child unless Mickey told her not to. All right said Farita, the fight shat out of him. You win, get it over with, just let the little boy go. Farita's goons strained on their leashes like rabid dogs, eager to punish and annihilate this British thug. But Mickey had already seen all of their limitations. He decided to show them what rabid meant. Cutter, said Mickey, I'm not going to kill you. I'm not going to kill your men either, but I need them to understand something. To save your son, you're going to have to eat yourself right now, in front of us all. You aren't going to impress them, you psycho, and I'm not hungry, he replied. You aren't listening, said Mickey, and he recognised the anger blazing through him as his one and only friend. You're going to eat yourself to death. Start with your hands, now. And so Cutafarita ate both his hands and his forearms and his shoulders and even the tops of his calves over the next hour and a half. Mickey diligently tied tourniquets to stem the blood loss, then passed Farita a knife so that he could slice free meat from his thighs and belly. Farita died after four hours, by which time half the Americans were insane and the rest were ready to do whatever this British criminal told them. It had been a good night. But that had been a week ago, and although every one of Mickey's colleagues had enjoyed a good laugh, they recognised that this was the end of something. Eventually they would have to make peace with the Americans, none of them had the ideology for total war, and naturally they would have to give up their madmen. They were businessmen, they told themselves, and there was no profit in psychopathy. So that night they burst in on Mickey and Damsel. Down in Brighton and away from his guards, he was naked and vulnerable. They hadn't planned to kill Damsel. Everyone knew that Mickey could only fuck someone when they were wearing a hood, so they had thought she would be blind when they caught him in flagrante. Too bad Mickey had been in, just been inspired to tell his lover to take off her mask, that he had wanted to see her this time. So they killed her just in case, and then knifed Mickey to death. Then they went off for a drink before heading back to London. Mickey only survived by carrying out an emergency transfusion from Damsel, stitching himself back together as she bled out into him and saved his life in her own death. He would have probably given up and just died there in her arms had he thought about it at all, but the attack had made him so damn angry. That anger. He recovered sufficiently and staggered out of the Brighton flat. Mickey's sin had been a fun way to spend a couple of years, but the ride was clearly over. He remembered the chaos six weeks before at New Year's and how the dead celebrities had torn apart the living before escaping into the night. He himself had been forced to stave in the skulls of Fred West and John Wayne Gacy to escape with his life and swum to shore laughing all the way. That had been the night the poem had begun. His next life would be better, but in the same spirit. He suddenly had a great idea for a novel. He was 19 years old. 
It was the 17th of August 2003. Elliot was in a small village about 500 kilometres north of Kampala. She was there to visit and learn from a small community organisation that was building children's playgrounds. Coincidentally, it had just been announced that the dictator Amin, who had been exiled from Uganda about 20 years before, had just died in Jeddah. The atmosphere in the village was strange. There was a powerful undercurrent to everything, even among the children who had never lived under his rule. They said that he had died with at least 30 children of his own out there, an invisible catastrophe carried in the tide. It would breach again somewhere, Elliot knew, a different face in a different country, but the same violence in the blood and the same virus in the words. Monsters don't just breed sexually. But today was about the other children. Elliot had been travelling for about six years now, crisscrossing the world on an odd trajectory, borne along by stories and rumours and threats and jokes and the echoes of bizarre events. She would look at the face of the outbreak and watch it stride off in the forms of those it transformed. The community organisation built playgrounds for children in rural communities that were too remote for any affordable, sustainable electrical power supply. There would be roundabouts and slides, hanging bars and climbing frames, but these were special pieces of equipment built to house dynamos that transformed the kinetic energy of the moving parts of the roundabouts and swings that were driven on and on by the children into electrical energy that then fed the supply of the village. In this way, a remote and disconnected village could power its local hospital or refrigerator centre, its water pumps or street lighting. The more the children played, the more powerful became the society. It's beautiful, said Elliot to Arange Kreuzung, her guide. He was tall and thin, German-Australian, the project director for Crossroad Mechanics, the designers and installers of the equipment. He had been in Uganda, delivering equipment like this for the last six months. Thank you, he said. The villagers seem pleased. And how is it paid for? Well, in this case, the villagers have agreed to sell some of the electricity back to us to power our mobile phone masts. We can then sell mobile coverage where it would otherwise be prohibitively expensive, and the villagers can then buy that coverage. Elliot smiled. OK, so how do they pay for the mobile phone coverage? It's also internet provision, he explained. The children can power internet, Wi-Fi and mobile, fo- mobile phone reception for the village, which means that the locals can work for an expanded number of employers from here, instead of having to make do with what's available in the very local area or commute down to Katido. The sun baked the brown dust at her feet and Elliot squinted off into the empty distance. Rolling hills on the horizon glowed green in the sun, an emerald crater rising up around them. It was beautiful here, but remote. She felt herself radiating, as she always did, but couldn't imagine anything receiving her own transmission. She smiled again. She couldn't imagine being able to receive any transmissions here from any of her earlier lives. I can't imagine computers are easy to come by here, she said. That's why we sell them, replied Arange. Isn't that a bit of a luxury item? No, not at all. We manufacture an extremely cheap laptop that runs off solar energy that's basically just a Wi-Fi receiver, open-source software, solid state, very durable, very few moving parts. We have a relationship with a couple of charities in the States and Europe that pay off most of the costs for our partners. We even sell the hardware in the States. They're quite sought after. They come with a crank. You can also wind them up to power them. And so places like this can be just as well connected as back home. I don't have a home, thought Elliot to herself. Later, she bought a laptop from Arange and set in the shadow of the mobile phone tower, a gigantic sundial, to scribble down her notes about the connection and communication, finding its way here. So, technically, she was home already. Just over a month later, she was in Oregon, in the United States. She landed in Canyon City and rented the cheapest car she could before driving into the Malheur National Forest. Malheur, she recognised, meant misfortune in French. Everything connoted, everything connected. Threads through the labyrinth. Tantric. 
She drove to Reynolds Creek in the orange light at the end of the day, the cool mountain air seeping into the car like the ocean. Her friend, Kendra Whitaker, met her outside the bar. They had never met before, but Elliot cultivated hundreds of friendships like this over the world, across the internet and through postcards. She never lost track of anyone. She never forgot a story or an instinct. These friends were extensions of her own skeleton, a branching scaffold of interests, stories, jokes and passions. Kendra had the same clear, confident stare as Elliot. Her brown eyes crinkled in the amber sunlight. Her skin was tanned and freckled. She was tall and thin, her dark hair tied back. She smiled, warm and healthy and strong, enjoying her element. You made it, she grinned, so good to meet you at last. They had met about six months before when Kendra had posted an article online that Elliot had stumbled over and fallen in love with. Kendra lived on the outskirts of Malheur National Park and worked for a community garden organisation that grew and sold vegetables and flowers. The park reached about a million and a half acres and was almost a hundred years old. Kendra had been involved in a National Park Service project about five years before as a volunteer, investigating something that had killed more than a hundred apparently healthy fir trees. The trees had turned red and started bleeding sap. Only young trees less than ten years old had been affected, and it had caused some worry. Forest is crime scene, at least a hundred murders, committed where no one could see. What would it kill next? The culprit was revealed to be a fungal infection. The victims were circled by mushrooms and white sheets of mycelia were found creeping like a cloud under the bark of the dying and dead trees. But then the discovery had become weird. Here we go, said Kendra. Elliot rushed to keep up with the younger woman as she strode up to a fir tree. Sure enough, there was a ring of small brownish-yellow mushrooms surrounding it. The mushrooms only sprout in the fall, Kendra explained as she unfolded a knife from her pocket and peeled back a piece of the bark. The fibrous, paper-thin skein of mycelia reminded Elliot of a cloud, or of skin, and she had the impression of a zombie tree, something undead. Kendra kneeled down and cut into the ground at the base of the tree. The rich black soil crumbled in her fingers, and she teased out a series of fibrous black threads, almost like shoelaces. They're called rhizomorphs, said Kendra, and they feed back nutrients to the mycelial mat underground. That mat is the organism itself. The mushrooms are just what's visible peeking like the eyes of an underwater crocodile. And that mat is the biggest living thing on Earth, said Elliot. That's right, it's a fungus called Armillaria solidipes, and we think it measures about three and a half square miles across. Elliot stood up and looked around her. Good God, that's fantastic. How do you know that's one organism? Genetic testing, she replied. And how old is it? We can't tell, Kendra said. I've heard people estimate 2,000 years old, but I've also heard theories guessing more than 8,500 years. So it's the oldest thing on Earth as well, Elliot said. Maybe, although there's a forest in Utah called Pando. It's about 50,000 trees over 100 acres, but they all share the same root system, so you could argue that it's just one tree that's continuously regenerating. People estimate that Pando could be more than 80,000 years old. It depends on how you measure life. Pando, said Elliot, like Pandora, all the treasure. I like that, said Kendra, but actually it's from the Latin, I spread. So would you call this one? Kendra looked fondly at the ground, at the leviathan creature still growing beneath her feet for at least 2,000 years. I call her prudence. Quiet wisdom and foresight under our feet. Fungi, they're made out of connections of threading fibres. That's what mycelia are. So they're a bit like disembodied brains, like a collection of dendrites and ganglia. Elliot grinned. Check out the big brain on prudence. Big and heavy said Kendra. We don't know for sure, but she probably weighs about 600 tonnes. Is she dangerous then, killing all those trees? 
Well, yes, said Kendra, but she was here long before the trees that she's eating. And these mats, they do a lot of good as well. The mycelia secrete an enzyme that metabolises carbon, and that includes petrol and pesticide products in the soil. They eat pollution as well, in other words. They help the earth regenerate. We really are in trouble if the world starts to grow beings that thrive on our corruption, Elliot said. Kendra shrugged. It's a dogma-eat-dogma world. You know, there are lots of species that are growing fat on our mistakes. The oceans are filling up with algae as global warming heats them up, and Canadarians are growing larger and larger on their improved menu. Canadarians? Elliot asked. Jellyfish. They don't have a maximum size to grow to. They just grow as large as their world lets them, and this world is letting them grow forever. Wow. Kendra frowned to herself. That's actually a bit of a coincidence. What is, Elliot asked. Some of our research into prudence has been funded by a pharmaceutical company that's run by a woman named Knid. Stella Knid, Elliot said. That's right, said Kendra. Do you know her? We go back away, said Elliot, and she looked over her shoulder. She almost didn't register the sensation because she always felt an undertow of paranoia, a vibrating anxiety that didn't quite relate to her life in any realistic way, but nevertheless powered it. And there was a sensitivity in her skin and her spine just then. It wasn't paranoia, she recognised. It was a legitimate acknowledgement of threat. Mrs Knid. What did she want for her investment? Elliot asked. Kendra sensed the change in the atmosphere. She wound up registering some patents. You can do that? Elliot asked. Yes, theoretically. How the mycelial enzymes metabolise carbon, how the biomass ages, even how it glows in the dark... All these little quirks and traits are processes that could be copyrighted. Copywritten? I don't know the word. I once heard about a company that wanted to patent the human arteriovascular system because they wanted sole rights to use the methodology to apply to their urban planning technologies. Tantric cities, I guess, woven together. And Prudence glows in the dark? Elliot asked. She does, replied Kendra proudly. She carries what are called luciferins. Small molecule substrates that are oxidised in the presence of the correct enzyme to produce energy in the form of a low green light. Sounds radioactive. Lots of creatures have that ability, of course, said Kendra. Including jellyfish, Elliot said. Exactly. The cloud beneath their feet was more than 2,000 years old and was at least three and a half miles across. It glowed in the dark, living through a sophisticated web of tantric filaments that was neither animal nor vegetable, but some other kind of life altogether. Elliot thought about mushroom clouds and connective tissue and the dreams of Mrs Stella Knid. It was the 7th of March 2004, back in London. Elliot sat in the back of the lecture theatre, surrounded by medical students and doctors and nurses. She had been one of these people just under a decade before. She had taken care to dress like them today so that they didn't notice her. The lecture was part of a series sponsored by Salt Pharmaceuticals. Nothing big or overly special, just something to bring people together, to help stoke the bonfires of their ideas. Tonight they were there to listen to an academic talk about skeletal deformation, but the academic in question was a philosopher rather than a doctor. A white woman in her early 60s, she smiled with meat-eating intelligence at the young crowd before her and talked about decay. Now, everyone starts to lose bone density from about the age of 35. Our skeletons all become weaker, more fragile, but the rates are far worse for women than men. Osteoporosis is a disease that weakens the skeleton still further and, in fact, is also far more prevalent in women than in men. Around 20% of Caucasian women over 50 have osteoporosis and about 1 in 2 women over the age of 50 will suffer an osteoporosis-related fracture, which is twice the rate in men. In fact, more than half of all those Caucasian women aged 50 and over have low bone mass. What can cause osteoporosis? 
See if the list of situations rings any bells with you women. First up, the menopause, because the body is no longer producing the same amount of oestrogen as before, and oestrogen keeps bones healthy. Eating disorders, they increase the risk, as does smoking and drinking alcohol. Over-exercise, that's another cause, as is having a body mass index of 19 or less. High heels, well of course high heels were going to make the list, high heels push the weight of the body directly onto the metatarsals, which changes your posture, which aligns your skeleton differently, which has been shown to reduce the synovial fluid in your joints. That's the lubricant that reduces friction when your bones rub against one another. The less of that you have, the more your bones grind and the weaker they get. So the woman who is likely to contract osteoporosis is a woman who smokes or drinks or exercises or is overly focused on her weight or wears high heels, or has gone through the menopause. What kind of percentage of women do you think fall into at least one of those categories? And that's my point. Can it genuinely be called a disease if the majority of women are likely to suffer from it? Isn't it actually life designed by a maniac? So love your bone sisters and keep them close. Elliot made her notes as she listened. The Salt Pharmaceuticals logo above the stage watched her. The five-year-old girl ran across the garden chasing the black cat. She wore shorts and a t-shirt and scabs scuffed her knees and elbows. Her face was round and grubby. Her eyes were pitch black. It was the 19th of September 2005 in the village of Montigny in Normandy, Rouen. Rouen, where they burnt Joan of Arc, was about five miles away. There was a church there built in 1979 that had been designed to look like a witch's hat in memory of the martyr, the witch who became a saint. Elliot and Nat sat in the Frenchwoman's garden, drinking pastis. Nat was still a mechanic, living with a little girl in the small French village surrounded by forest. Elliot had made a point of never looking back, but she visited the couple at least once every six months, sometimes staying for a night or two, sometimes longer. She had been there now all summer. Of course she remembers you when you're not here, said Nat. You're her mother. You'll always be her mother. You do the best you can with who you are. She's kind and happy and healthy. Everything else is a luxury. What did Bush say, said Elliot? Yes, I'm doing a heck of a job. Oh, said Nat. Did you see that press conference? Jesus. I know, Elliot said. I was in New Orleans only just last year. I need to go back. You know that guy, the head of the emergency management agency, the one Bush praised? He just quit. Just in the nick of time, eh? I think I'm a better mother than he is a director of FEMA. Elliot's voice trailed off. Don't, Nat said. I can live with your decision, and she can live with your decision. But we can't live with your self-pity. OK, I'm sorry. So when are you going? Nat asked. How do you know I'm going? replied Elliot. You always get wistful when you're getting ready to go. Some people check their keys, you check your conscience. I said I was sorry. Nat refilled Elliot's glass. Well? I've just heard from an American I know, a folklore professor. She's managed to find something that we think can be used as bait for one of the Bone Ditch's soldiers. I want to meet her in Scotland with another friend of mine, see who we can dredge up. You know you've been doing this for nearly ten years. If we catch the right soldier, I might be able to end this thing, or at least give up with a healthy conscience. It's ironic, said Nat. If you ever did give up this thing and came back here for good, if you stopped meeting all these strange men and women, you wouldn't have any more stories to tell her. She does love my stories, doesn't she? Elliot said. Of course she does. You're her storyteller. You'll always be her storyteller. Elliot smiled. I was reading about this new website, said Nat. People can load up all their videos there, keep them online where everyone can see them. Oh, really, like home videos? I guess, said Nat, but anything in theory. Apparently these guys got frustrated they missed the video of Janet Jackson's tit popping out last year, so they built a website where that kind of thing would be easy to find. Apparently the tsunami as well, off Indonesia. It was hard finding clips of the devastation. 
the web wasn't big enough for them. So this website's a great investment then, said Elliot, so long as there are tits and catastrophes in the world. Exactly, said Nat, at last a bubble economy that will never burst. Elliot laughed. But don't tell her you're going, added Nat. She'll just get upset. You go. I'll explain it to Chase after. Elliot sat quietly. It was the 1st of April 2006. The school was by the lake. The lake was what had killed all the children 18 years before. Someone had dumped something that didn't have a name close by, and it had found its way into the water. It had been the summer. All the children had played in the lake that summer. None of them had survived. Even now there were no children in the town. They hadn't exactly passed a law, but the mood of the town had changed, and parents had realised that any children they brought into the town to live, or even to visit, would be watched with envy. Now the town tended to attract residents who didn't want to be disturbed by rambunctious children or untrustworthy teenagers. Some people found the town eviscerated, a limping casualty with its heart ripped out. But more and more people were finding it a restful place, so long as their grandchildren didn't come to visit. House prices were surprisingly high. The woman still went by Miss Hemp, rarely using her given name. Dead giveaway for a schoolteacher. Every morning she woke with the rats that scurried back into their holes with the breaking of the day. There weren't any birds left to provide a more picturesque dawn chorus. Miss Hemp slept in the storage annex just off the school hall on a pile of gym mats. Every day she walked into the hall, which faced east across the lake, and smelled the atomic traces that, 18 years later, she was convinced still clung to the air. Floor wax, prepubescent sweat, summer disco sweets, laughter. Everyone knew that the lake was safe now, but that wasn't the reason she took a swim in the water. It was a dare. It was spitting in the face of the enemy. She splashed, swam and washed, then dried herself off and walked through the dawn to the canteen. It was a separate building, back in the woods, massively overgrown now. The only track through the wild grass was the one she herself carved, back and forth, every day for 18 years. Miss Hemp never deviated. She ate her breakfast on a tiny chair, listening to long, exhausted echoes of jokes and stories, then got ready for work. It was the same classroom in which she had taught for those 18 years. Thirty tiny chairs, empty now, facing her desk in front of her blackboard. She wrote the date on the board, then listed the tasks for the day. The last time she had seen her class, they had been ten. They had been learning about the ancient Greek pantheon, Daedalus's magnificent labyrinth, the misshapen beast that lurked in it, and Ariadne's thread, leading Theseus to victorious murder. But those invisible long-dead children were 28 now, and the topic of her lesson today was the role of inbreeding in the establishment of European alliances in the first 15 years of the 20th century. Her handwriting was just as neat and simple and ambiguous as it had been back in those early days, as she wrote down the family names and headlined the events that had precipitated each alliance, including but not limited to hereditary disease, act of war, sexual assault or discovery of gold mine. Miss Hemp sat down at her desk and read over her lesson plan. She could anticipate the questions that her dead children would raise, so she took advantage of the quiet time before lessons began to be sure that the answers she would give would be straightforward and informed. Rebecca, for instance, would want to get the conversation moving on to ramifications in the post-9-11 era, Miss Hemp knew, but her readings usually ran to simplistic narrative rhymes rather than detailed historical analysis with verified sourcing. Rebecca was given to gratifying contextual leaps of imagination, but there was always the risk that she would move the conversation on too far and too fast for the others before they had properly appreciated the basics. Miss Hemp smiled. She would go into the playground in ten minutes or so and ring the bell to summon them in. 
The spring sunlight raked the classroom, a fierce vanilla, scouring but hopeful, simple but energising. She wept, as usual, then dried her eyes, focused her attention and picked up the handbell on her desk. Miss Hemp went out into the playground. The concrete had cracked with the force of the weeds that had struggled up from their roots, and the painted outlines of the hopscotch and football areas had faded to all but nothing. And, of course, there were no children there that anyone that Miss Hemp could appreciate. There hadn't been any children in this playground since 1988. But still she could see her boys and girls, older now, so much older, but bright and hopeful and powerful. They had joined the school in 1983, registered by parents who had trusted Miss Hemp and her colleagues to look after them, raise them with love and diligence, to help produce vital engines of empathy and agency. Miss Hemp knew what she was doing. But there was a stranger in the playground, a woman carrying a backpack in her early thirties, prematurely grey with eyes like a predator. Can I help you, Miss Hemp, said, her voice raised to carry above the screaming, laughing children. Miss Hemp, my name is Elliot Rent. May I speak with you, please? My class is about to start. Can you come back at about noon? Of course. Thank you. If you want, you can wake in the library. Miss Hemp nodded to herself, then rang the handbell. Elliot watched as Miss Hemp held open the doors into the school, a smile of care and peace on her face as she looked into faces that loved her, to whom she had dedicated her life. Elliot found the library. This room, more than any other, showed the passage of time over the previous 18 years. There were still the occasional Dr. Zeus books, but the pleasing anachronism of the hard copy of the Encyclopaedia Britannica. But now the shelves were crowded out with textbooks and sophisticated histories and treatises. Narnia had been replaced with screw tape, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory with Towels of the Unexpected. The curriculum had moved on since 1988, and Miss Hemp had taken care to stay informed to keep the children engaged. Elliot was impressed that the school teacher had managed to procure so much. From what she had heard, Miss Hemp never left the site. Locals might leave supplies at the school date gates after dark when no one would see them, but the woman was possessed of an energy that made things happen. Elliot knew, and probability played second fiddle to the consequences of that energy. An old biography on the bookshelves caught Elliot's eye. The Spider Bitch by James Burton. It was hard to come by a copy, Elliot knew. It had been rumoured to be extinct on more than one occasion. Every now and again some pressure group would announce a bounty on copies and red remainder rendered remains would be mailed to a dead letters office for cash reward. The subject of the book was Mrs Sarah Kant, as was... This was in the days before Mrs. Kant had died and been replaced by Mrs. Knid, before she had inherited the pharmaceuticals firm and moved into publishing. Back in the days of this biography, she had been a serial widow, serendipitously finding herself in the company of politicians, dictators and generals. The lies of the biography had been swallowed up by the truth, or vice versa, ever since publication, so now it was impossible to know whether Mrs. Kant had truly exhibited President Kennedy's missing brain at a party in Gestart in 1967 or exactly why her right eye was stained blood red, or why she had been thrown out of the Hotel Royal Party in Tibet in 1958 in the company of Ayn Rand. Burton had been a respected political journalist for years. This book had long been cited as an early symptom of the brain tumour that would kill him three years after it had been published in 1968. Safer now by far to execute any copy of the book found in the wild and to pretend that Mrs Kant had never existed. Mrs Knid was far more respectable. Older too, and who bothers to be afraid of an old woman? Miss Hemp, Elliot guessed, knew the rumours about Salt Pharmaceuticals' suspected role in the chemical spill in 1988 that had so drastically changed all those lives around her. 
Elliot heard the bell ring. Shortly afterwards, Miss Hemp joined her in the library. Thank you for waiting, said the school teacher. Now, how can I help you? Miss Hemp, I've heard a lot about you and your children, and I just wanted to pay my respects. The two women talked. It isn't just the people that they would have become, continued Miss Hemp. It's the changes that they would have made. They're only 28. A lot of them would probably still be figuring out a career path from a lot of accidental jobs. But David, for instance, he'd have children by now. Cheryl would be a teacher herself. I'm certain Rebecca would have started to make her way into politics, or at least policy development. And Bed would be on his way to his first million. He would be married too by now. I know that. And with at least two children. And then, do you ever look at a hole? What do you mean? asked Elliot. That missing piece, a pothole, an unfinished jigsaw, a gap in a smile. When you can't find the right word, when your bus doesn't show up, when you become old and no one ever fell in love with you, or was there to put out the fire, to administer CPR, or invent a vaccine, or make you smile on that day you were just so sad, that hole. What if there are dead children all over the world who could have filled those holes? So? So what if there's a way for them to come back? I know it has never happened before. But then again, if it did, why do we think people would talk about it? I mean, they'd just pretend they never went away in the first place in case someone came to take them away again. So what if there was a way? Or what if they never really did leave all the way? What if the children are still here somehow? In case there was any possible way that could happen, that they could find a way back, wouldn't you have to save a space for them just in case? Elliot knew the answer but asked the question anyway. But why you? Because I promised them I'd be the best teacher I could be, of course, because I promised I would look after them. They joined this school in September 1983, and I promised I wouldn't desert them. Miss Hemp let Elliot sit in on the afternoon's class, which is about the role of citizen activism in combating the HIV-AIDS plague across the United States in the 80s and 90s. Elliot smiled as Miss Hemp indulged Rebecca's attempts to derail the conversation slightly, with references to how early 19s TV set and prop designers had smuggled references to the counterculture into their shows. Picturesque paintings on the walls of scenes of mass shootings, and the chemical chain depiction of the morning after pill traced across duvet sets on daytime soap operas. The children were 28 years old now. Elliot knew Miss Hemp would still be teaching them when they were in their 60s. As Elliot walked back up the overgrown lane that had led to the school, she found Kataki Eleison waiting for her by her van. It was the first time they had met each other since the day outside the hotel room in 1996, ten years before. It was a year since Dove had told Elliot this woman's secret history. Kataki hadn't aged a day, and she was still dressed for war. How did you know I was here? Elliot asked, bristling, angry at being seen. Kataki just smiled. I have a friend who's dating a member of Miss Hemp's class, he told me. You keep an eye on her too? Or maybe I've never heard of her before, said Kataki, and it's you I'm keeping an eye on. Did Dove tell you I spoke to him? Of course. They were sizing each other up. Elliot was suddenly peculiarly territorial about her university friend. Why did you recruit him? Dove, you mean, said Kataki, obviously because I wanted to stay in touch with you, even a step or two removed. I might not have bothered if I'd known what a bad friend you were. I've been busy, Elliot said, practically by way of apology. You stay in touch with hundreds of people around the world, said Kataki, but with no one from the days before we met. Should I be taking that personally? Yes. Kataki lit a cigarette. Nice to have a bit of business. She indicated back towards the school. What did you make of her? She's brilliant, said Elliot. She's wasting her life, Kataki answered. Why do you say that? 
She's built the perfect anarchist terrorist cell. She's trained those children to be relentlessly empathic, cognitively imaginative and uncompromisingly moral. Last week, she had them manufacturing explosives, the week before designing curriculum content for children with autism. The only thing that is stopping that class from changing the world for the better is that they've all been dead for 18 years. Why do you think she can't direct that passion and talent towards the living? Just because the children aren't real, said Elliot, doesn't mean that they aren't true. Kataki studied the younger woman. Do you believe that? Elliot smiled. A couple of years ago, I made contact with a group of young people, early 20s, who had grown up together, all been taught by the same woman back in the 80s, when they were eight or nine. This was in Tokyo. Their teacher had died suddenly, killed by a boyfriend. Thing is, these people, they all report years of recurring dreams of being back in class with that teacher, even to this day. None of them are in contact with each other. They've all gone their separate ways. But they all dream of the same classroom, dream that they are all there together, all grown up. And there's their teacher giving them lessons on compassion and the spirit. Those kids have grown up to be doctors, charity workers, social workers. It's hard not to conclude that the right kind of teacher has stood by them. What has it done to you? asked Kataki, collecting all these stories. What did it do to you? It showed me how I could use all that power, Kataki said. For what? To save the world, replied the older woman. You've been doing this for ten years now, but from what I can see, you're still a tourist. There's a war going on and you're watching to see what will get burnt down next. Well, I don't have your connection, said Elliot. You do, Kataki replied, but you're frightened to use them. Then I don't have your convictions. In this world, said Kataki, you still don't see what's at stake. When they're shoveling away the ashes, be sure to have the dignity to look away, said the woman with a can of petrol. My plan, said Kataki, was to show you enough to inspire you to go off and see some more, to see enough to get you in the game. But ten years later, you won't stop looking. Dove tells me that you have collected enough material to recruit an army. I don't want an army, Elliot said. You could save the world with an army that knew how to use this madness, that could thrive on catastrophe. I have a group of amateurs who together have done half of what you've done all by yourself. You're rag and bone men, Elliot said. Kataki grimaced. I've made alliances and connections across the world, from madmen to freaks to the survivors of plagues and air crashes. We have managed to change government policy, and when we failed to do that, we've changed the governments. We've held knives to the throats of monsters until they've rescued children, and we've stopped wars in their tracks. You've been scratching that one itch. Elliot said. We have, yes. That day, said Elliot, that day outside the hotel room, who was in there? If I'd agreed to go in, who would I have met? The Bonditch, of course, Kataki answered. The goddess of disaster, a dead woman, a woman who died over a hundred years before. She was literally in that room waiting to meet me, Elliot said. You've met dozens of people who have met her, who have been changed by her personally and directly. How can you still doubt in her existence? I believe, said Elliot carefully, that doubting her existence is the entire fucking point. I see how modern of you, Kataki said. In that respect, is the bone ditch like the daughter that you refuse to raise? Bitch, stop worshipping Carly herself and then we'll talk about parenting. It was the 5th of November 2008. The room had been chilled to stop the particles of the dead body from floating and spreading in the warm air currents from accreting to your mucous membrane and soft palate. In front of Elliot was the naked corpse of her friend. Her other friend, still alive, stood next to her with a bone saw in his hands. He fidgeted with it to give him something to do instead of having to react to Elliot's grief. 
nice to have a bit of business. You know you're getting old when you get to see your girlfriend in here, said the doctor. Elliot nodded. She stepped forward and kissed the dead woman on the lips. They hadn't kissed since her last visit to London the year before. Elliot was surprised by the sadness flooding her. She honestly believed that she had moved beyond these kinds of reactions. She respected and cherished empathy, but had long felt that she had outrun its hold on her more vulnerable emotions. In many ways, that had been a defence mechanism. Evidence of its vital importance to her was lying before her. Justine had never been able to stop the feeling. You're sure about this? the living man asked her. I guarantee you, said Elliot, you'll find it was suicide. She was stabbed to death thirty times. She put herself in a position where she would have to be. Why, said the doctor. That's why I want you to check her spinal column. Oh, Christ, Elliot, that's a lot of work. Carrot or stick, Nigel? Fine, don't go anywhere. What am I looking for? What are you ever looking for? The thing that shouldn't be there. I'll be in the lounge. Elliot looked down at Justine and left her friend to her final violation. For the last eight years, Dr Nigel Canterbury had contacted Elliot whenever he had autopsied a weird one. Anatomical impossibilities, bizarre suicides, occult tattooing, animal attack. Dr Canterbury was a friend and a ghoul, but also a wonderful source of information on the peculiarities of the morbid mortal tide. This time, she had called him in. Justine Sams was another old friend, an investigative journalist who had passed hints of stories to Elliot in the same way that Nigel passed mouthfuls of corpses. Elliot had never lost track of Justine. She never did that with a friend, but she hadn't heard from her for a while. And then Justine had died in a blizzard of knives down a London street, having just returned from a town on the California coast called San Sinsonte. It had been the mention of that town's name in Justine's recent history that had curdled grief into curiosity. Nigel found Elliot five hours later. OK, you were right, said the doctor to the former medical student. What was it? I don't know, said Nigel, but there's something in her spinal column, some kind of chemical. I've never seen it before. It's testing for some unusual properties that indicate, well, that suggest something strange, but I'll have to send it off for further testing. Don't do that, said Elliot. That'll just send a signal. She showed him a scrap of paper with a chemical chain scrawled on it. Is this it? He examined the paper. It is. Yes, it is, I think. W what is it? It's called vellum. Venom? No, vellum. Like the leather you write on, like the veil you find on mushrooms. It's a psychoactive drug that was developed a couple of years ago by this pharmaceutical company looking to market an over-the-counter aphrodisiac for women. Nigel shuddered. It's an arms race, Nigel, believe me. Anyway, this drug failed at that, but in tests was found to increase empathy. Not the intoxicated impression of empathy, but literal emotional recognition and sustained sympathetic and empathic connection. I read about this one trial the company performed on psychopaths in prison. Ordinarily, you tell a psychopath you're going to hurt her and she doesn't react. You can see a flat line in their brains, an inability to react to the prospect of suffering. So-called normal guys start spiking adrenaline and panic with the threat of violence, but psychopaths don't react. It's the same reason why recidivism rates among psychopaths are so high. Prison's no threat. There's no such thing as a threat. But this stuff even turned that around, told these psychos they were going to get an electric shock and they started to show panic. And suddenly they're seeing social awareness and guilt and compassion in them as well. That's amazing, said Nigel. Why isn't everyone talking about this? The drug was never released, said Elliot. It exists, but they haven't found out a way to market it as widely as they want. One reason is that the initial formula comes from a virus, some mutation they found in Eastern Europe. 
No one's particularly keen to introduce a virus into the pharmacy unless they can tweak it enough to make it look fake. But the other reason is that sufficient accumulation in the spinal column causes lasting side effects. A complete atrophy of the brain's ability to create those emotional connections. Wait, you're saying if you take enough of it, you turn into a psychopath? Elliot turned from her living friend to her dead friend. There's a town in California that's owned by the pharmaceutical firm. You know those creepy towns where they don't let you buy property if you have kids? It's like that, except it's filled with psychopaths. You can't get a foot in the door if you have naturally exhibiting empathy and compassion. They've stashed their vellum casualties there, hiding them among the organic psychopaths. Free range. This can't be true, Elliot, said the doctor. I know, Nigel, I know. It was the 1st of April 2009. Jeff Holloman hadn't seen Haley Sacrum since his confession ten years before, but they had stayed in touch. They weren't close, but he now knew she wasn't really called Haley. Did you get it? Elliot asked the bone-thin, pale and pockmarked millionaire ghoul. Jeff smiled, easy peasy. The last time they had met, he had been trading drugs and working on the Y2K bug. Now he had combined the best elements of both professions and was a private investigator. Working from his luxurious apartment in Canary Wharf, after his adventure in Bali, he had never again left London, he supported several organisations in their pursuit of secrets. He was reasonably certain he wasn't ever breaking the law, in part because the law didn't have an accurate description for what it was that he did. This time he had been hired by Elliot to track down traces of Justine Sam's last testament. Jeff handed Elliot a sheaf of papers. Anyone else have asked me to find this, I would have diagnosed science fiction and an underemployed sub-editor. Do you think she was onto something? I keep an open mind, replied Elliot. The files had been culled from a computer owned by a company that had brought hardware from a recently bankrupt newspaper. The newspaper had been working with Justine, but gone out of business just after she had died. Jeff had found the newspaper by scraping call data and blagging access to voicemails left on Justine's mobile phone, then cracked access to the computer through a virus he had emailed to the new owner. Poor data security had meant that, fortunately, Justine's drafts still existed in an all-but-lost backwater of a single computer's hard drive. Vellum is not empathy, wrote the dead writer, but rather the illusion of connectivity, engineered so as to encourage its targets to group closer together. It's a literal clusterfuck. The traders would only throw one slave overboard when approached by the Navy, after all. They all knew that the chains that bound their victims would drag them all to their deaths. Empathy has been weaponized. It had begun, Elliot learned, as a story into the fashion for tech firms to buy California real estate and price locals out of their old neighbourhoods. But the neighbourhood in question had been San Sinsonte, and the locals had been moved on to make way for psychopaths. Justine had snuck into the town and fallen in love with a blonde stockbroker, guilefully disguising her genuine affection as a burgeoning fascination with S&M. She had begun to take Vellum to fit in with those who delighted in the mood poisoning it wrought, and found to her surprise that her natural empathy had become even more expanded on the drug, enabling more imaginative and perspicacious insights. Thankfully, this expanded consciousness came with the increased ability to empathise with and mimic the sociopaths she now lived among, to perfect her narcissistic disguise. How wonderful to understand people so clearly, to be unencumbered by personal egocentricity, and to be able to see the threads of logic and causality that brought reasonable people to unreasonable conclusions. In between letting the blonde stockbroker thrash her to a bleeding, apologetic and servile pulp, Justine let her new imagination run for its life and come to its conclusions. 
Justine watched as the world collapsed in a financial meltdown that had been eminently predictable, except that it hadn't been. Diseased investments had penetrated safe funds and high viral loads of risk had been spread like bad sex. So few people had known better that it was almost like it had been part of the plan. And Justine wrote about two simultaneous worlds, one where we were hamstrung by catastrophe and another where we were deliberately shackled to a tyrannical fate by masters who were impervious to those catastrophes that they were farming. Strung out on vellum, Justine saw both worlds clearly, simultaneously. Our investments, she wrote, were literally our futures and we shared them without thinking twice, so we all fell together. Except, except there are lunatics in this town who weren't caught out, who cashed out of the game before the crash, who smelled disaster on the wind. They didn't mistake our ambitions for their ambitions. They rolled different bones. And when the Twin Towers fell... Our outrage fueled a war that still hasn't ended seven years later. Our outrage at this crime will inspire not just a hatred of bankers, but also obviously a hatred of those that continue to cost us money. And our appetite for outrage will grow a cannibalism of our cherished beliefs as our faiths are betrayed by disaster and villainy. Are we being milked of our outrage by those who don't feel outrage? Are we being encouraged to lash out? Is an engine being built that thrives on the consequences of catastrophe. Look what they do with our anger. They wage war and they criminalise, and we grow thin on a diet of our own diminishing understanding and compassion. Elliot read Justine's words with her heart in her mouth. What will happen next? A new season of hells? Will disaster and accident sabotage one supporting beam after another in this cathedral we all share together? Will we put down our own temple in outrage and be crushed to death? Will we all be left profane? Here's a new thought. Wouldn't that be better to live without belief or faith or trust? Wouldn't it be better to be comfortably numb? It's clear to me that I've overdosed on vellum. I can see all the mechanisms around me, a clock of hate. And yet I don't despair. I know I'll be fine. I don't care, so I'm safe. I don't feel outrage anymore. I don't have kids or friends who I live or die by. It's just me, and I can see the clock turning. I'll step between the cogs and the hammers. People like me will be all right, and we were never one for cathedrals. The views here are beautiful. And a few months later, that summer, Britain was seized with loathing when a series of scandals broke about the amount of money being charged as expenses by its politicians. And a year later... In the aftermath of the 2010 British general election, a new series of laws and rules were enacted that eviscerated public spending. Austerity, as it was called, was catching on everywhere else in the world too. Low financial coffers were blamed, not on a nine-year international war or the bailing out of banks crippled in the crisis of their own making, but on public welfare sponges and the ire of the world focused on the poor and the struggling, who always seemed to need our help. And a year later, in the summer of 2011, Elliot Rent watched as it was revealed that journalists had employed spies to hack voicemails and emails of ordinary citizens to fuel their exposés, and papers closed and journalists went out of business on a raft of anger. Elliot remembered the summer of 1997, standing with her new friend in the shadow of the wreckage of a beloved woman who had been chased to her death by journalists and paparazzi. And sometimes Elliot shared and fuelled the anger, and sometimes she was only burnt by it. 
but she watched as institutions and communities were ravaged or ignored and people were trampled and feelings ran high and hot and shallow. And no one trusted anyone and every day seemed to bring a new accident or a new scandal or a new bad decision or a new flagrant crime that should have been vilified but was instead tolerated because we'd been bled of our outrage and now only metabolised the catastrophes, turning disasters into some kind of necessary fuel. And Elliot Rent was finally scared. Professor Michael Breeden was invited to the Literary Festival in the autumn of 2016. Eminence Greece, his literary magnum opus, was still ahead of him, but he was already making an impact on the lecture circuit for his erudite and shocking discourses on the role of catastrophe in the downfall of civilizations. Dressed in a fine linen suit and sparkling behind his glass of champagne, he walked the grounds of the country estate that was hosting the festival, smiling whimsically and flirtatiously at questions posed him by fans and journalists. This was the life he had always wanted. The festival was sponsored by Salt, a chemical company famous for its role in two or three international conflagrations, and was being hosted on the Janusgrave estate down on the Cornish coast. Janusgrave was a legion of turrets and a panopticon of windows. It was what a manor house would look like if it had been modelled on a paranoid cat, always looking for either a threat or a meal. As had almost everything else in the world, it had seen better days. The lawn was yellowed and sparse, and the surrounding woods were creeping closer and closer to the manor proper, like the onset of neurological damage. The house was as if Edward Hopper had fallen in love with a Piranesi impossible prison, as if Escher had become trapped trying to draft the real world from the other side of one of his lithographs. Those writers who specialised in fantasiacal fantasies were delighted to be at such an evocative locale. Darling, it's like Marienbad, they gushed while those lured from more cacophonic metropoli floated in the air like motes of radioactive dust, searching for a white spot that would enable them to tweet epigrams that were less mo-juste than mo-fo. A political memoirist stood like a stain in the air, a biologist who had evolved past empathy transmitted verbal bacteria with a theologian whose latest theodosal manifesto had rationalised honour killings. Several thriller writers clusterfucked a brand new crime together and drew blood to decide who would get to publish it. A newspaper editor took bets on how long it would take the crime to be committed in what they believed was the real world. And Michael Breeden was having the time of his life. In this company he felt dangerous and in demand. He was in his element and beginning to realise that the element in question was lower in the periodic table than he had previously believed. He was evolving the ability to metabolise poison. He snatched the word exvention from the conversation of two women walking by him and wombs in his head started to construct a skeleton of crime around the word. A compact man in a better suit approached him. Professor Breeden, isn't it? Nice to meet you again. Michael smiled beatifically. Have you met? A long time ago, one of those events of the season. We saw in this millennium together before it all went wrong. The Mask of the Red Tops. Michael was delighted he never got to boast about his attendance at that party. The compact man grinned, and I even lived to tell the tale. Well, you seem to land on your feet. You were a con man last century, weren't you? Michael stammered. Please, don't feel threatened. I was there in my capacity as a gangster myself. I turned over a new leaf shortly afterwards as well. You wouldn't have thought that the end of the world would have been so inspiring, would you? My name is Michael too, by the way. I am Michael Harriancor. I've... I've read your books. They're, they're exactly like Steppenwolf. They're not for everybody. Madmen only, said our Michael. Stop, I'll blush. Are you having fun at this soiree? 
Michael Harriencore didn't look like the kind to blush. His skin was ashen, as if he had spent too much time staring at crematoria, and his eyes were black. He was a novel writer, Michael Breeden knew, the author of such savage pornographies as Samuel Dust, Erotivore and Fucking Hell, novels he had seen spill out of his students' bags as if from bullet wounds. There were rumours about this man, that he had been a gangster sometime earlier. I'm having a wonderful time, said Michael. It's rare to be in such company. Well, of course it is, smiled Mr Harriencore. Everyone here is far more successful than you and has exhibited far greater talent, diligence and imagination over their careers. Professor Breeden stammered again. Please don't embarrass yourself just because it excites me. You're not particularly unintelligent, so you must have wondered why you've been invited to be among us. You've self-published a collection of your lectures as a textbook or two, but you certainly aren't a writer, are you? The most successful of your books sold 304 copies, and I've only ever found three people to have read it in its entirety. You're a businessman, or rather, you've become infected with a point of view that has enabled you to make money. Now look, no, 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 listen to me. The words I'm using to communicate with you now are triple encoded. Primarily, you're suddenly embarrassed and worried and feeling badly about yourself, and I find that arousing on a level you would probably identify as sexual but is actually something more carnal for which there isn't a word, because those few of us who experience it want to to remain secret from those of you we are delighted to milk. Secondarily, I own this estate and I am the host of this festival, but I was asked to invite you by another of my guests who finds you fascinating and wants to work with you. Finally, I was infected with that point of view as well, and I also owe it my success. I... I'm my own man, our Michael stammered. You're so sensible the other Michael replied, and your biography will read so quickly and so predictably. And you're out of your mind if you think I would believe a word of it. We went to the same parties, Professor Breeden, don't forget that. We both know what seems like a perfectly plausible plan is actually a skeleton of broken bones, an architecture built out of unpredictable catastrophe, sheathed in a heavily made-up hide. Your life is a bloodstain of accidents. Your friend went mad, your lover was killed. You went to a party and you met the devil. And then the 21st century happened to you like it happened to us all. Car crashes and bubble economies, falling towers, referenda and a war on the concept of terror. It's amazing to me that any of us can still pay attention to a train of thought in this world that plays out like a murderous polygraph. We both speak catastrophe. Let's not pretend we're counting on there being a tomorrow. Let's not assume that there will be children to love us. Who do you want me to meet? said Michael. Her name is Stella Knidd. She's the woman over there who looks like Angela Lansbury, the Manchurian candidate. She runs SALT. That's the ones who's sponsoring all of this. There's a rumour that she only invested in this festival so that she could get to meet you. Mrs Knidd shook Michael's hand. Harry and Cor stood back from them both, smiling warmly like a pyre. You were with Mr Harry and Cor at the Mask of the Red Tops, Stella said. I was. Did you encounter Ms Stitch? Who? I think you can guess who I mean. The woman who had been with Sir Victor at the party. Sir Victor, tied into his bondage carapace, being tortured by the bone-thin white woman in the black dress. I can, yes, said Michael. And did she speak to you? She did. And what did she say to you? Breeden licks his lips. This was sixteen years before, but he dreamt the words at least once a month. She said, I can smell Elliot on you. Elliot being Elliot Rent. I think so. You were her friend at university? Yes. When did you last see her? Not since she left university. When her parents were killed? Yes. 
You know, for the last 20 years, Elliot Rent has been searching for your lady friend. I believe that she probably understands more about the woman, Miss Stitch, than anyone else left alive. I would very much like to meet with Miss Rent at her earliest convenience to discuss Miss Stitch, and I am willing to offer you an incentive to arrange our introduction. I, I haven't had anything to do with Elliot in two decades. Elliot's somewhat sentimental, said Mrs Kinnid. I suspect we could draw her out. How? By making you successful beyond your wildest dreams. Who are you? Michael Breeden asked the terrifying woman standing in front of him. I, said Stella Kinnid, am the patron saint of do as you're told. The last survivor of the air crash twitched in her seat. Above her, where the trees should have been, was a perfect blue sky. She smelled flowers and thought of her mother. In front of her, all of a sudden, was someone who appeared first as a devil and then as a saint. Only finally was she a woman, an incredibly old woman, her right eye blood red about its violet iris and pitch black pupil. Hello, Mrs. Kinnid, said the final survivor. Hello, Ms. Eleison, said the patron saint as do as you're told. Mrs. Kinnid bent down and extracted a notebook from Kataki's pocket. Your ledger de main, smiled Mrs. Kinnid. I have quite a collection of these. They are most useful. My army write them to inspire people to rise up against you, said Kataki. And I collect them, my dear, because they give me such good ideas. Did you blow up my plane? asked Kataki. No, but let's be honest, it was a disaster waiting to happen. Mrs. Kinnid leafed through Kataki's personal journal. Oh, so you believe the sisters have Mrs. Rent's daughter? And her granddaughter? Kataki was silent. Oh, please don't mistake my rhetoric for an opportunity for you to demonstrate defiance. You have literally written down everything I wanted to know, here in this book, which you have covered with your bloodstains. Mrs. Kinnid laughed as she flipped to the last page. Oh, darling, you were even writing in it as the plane crashed. Stella Kinnid turned to smile at Kataki, but she was already dead. To be continued.